Hello and welcome to episode 36 of The Five By, your bi-weekly dose of rapid fire board game reviews. This week I digest food chain magnate, we explore pyramids with Mason and Ruth takes us back to Alhambra. We go on a deep sea adventure with Sarah and Ruel puzzles Obongo. So sit back, pour yourself a cup of tea and enjoy. I'm not a big fan of press your luck games. Any kind of gambling stresses me out, so why would I want it in my board games? And yet I love Deep Sea Adventure. Designed by Jun Sasaki and Goro Sasaki and published in 2014 by Oink Games, Deep Sea Adventure is a fast little game with a simple premise. You're deep sea diving for treasure. The farther you go, the more valuable the treasure, but the farther to get back to the safety of the ship. And the more treasure you carry, the slower you move and the faster you use up the oxygen supply. And here's the kicker. There's one oxygen supply shared by all players. When you get greedy and pick up too much treasure, you aren't just lowering the chances of yourself making it back to the ship. You're lowering the chances for everyone. And the oxygen always runs out faster than you expect, meaning most players are most of the time carrying too much treasure. The game is played in three rounds. The rulebook says that anyone who doesn't get back before the oxygen runs out drops their treasure and floats to the surface, which is a bit less gruesome than the obvious implication that they drown. Although I have to admit there's something hilarious about the premise of mercenary deep-sea divers who keep drowning and then their descendants go back in the same ship after the same treasure? I'm not really clear on the details. The last time I taught this game to someone, he drowned in the first round, then as the second round began he announced, I don't have any treasure, but I am carrying heavy emotional baggage from diving in the same place where my father just died. But survive or no, if you don't escape to the ship you drop your treasure, scoring nothing for that round. The treasure you drop sinks to the very bottom of the sea in stacks of three. These stacks count as one treasure in terms of oxygen use and slowed movement, but are worth their full point value if you manage to get back with one. This makes the stacks, all the way at the bottom, tempting targets in the final round. Especially because there's no board in Deep Sea Adventure, just a path made of the little tiles that represent treasure. Every treasure picked up makes the path a little bit shorter, and the good stuff at the bottom becomes a little bit more tempting. As you would expect from a press your luck game, there is a lot of luck in Deep Sea Adventure. Every turn you roll two dice to see how far you move. The dice are six-sided, but only go from one to three. Six spaces is the most you can possibly move in a turn, and you subtract one for every treasure you're carrying. This means that if you have two treasures, it's possible to roll a two and not move at all. With three treasures, every turn has a 50% chance of no movement, and the more treasures you're holding, the faster you're burning through the limited oxygen. Since the oxygen supply is shared, I often find myself rooting for another player to make it to the surface just so they'll stop using up air I need to survive. If they get out, I might have a chance to get out too. My only real complaint about Deep Sea Adventure is that while the box says two to six players, this is not a two-player game. I've tried it at two, and it fell very flat. The fun comes from the interaction, and with two players, there just isn't enough. Most of my game playing is with two people, so this means I don't get to play Deep Sea Adventure nearly as often as I'd like. But at higher player counts, it's a wonderful game. At five or six, it's a hilarious party game in which the oxygen disappears before you know it and everyone drowns over and over, which only adds to the hilarity. I think three or four players is the sweet spot. There's plenty of interaction, plenty of chances to condemn yourself to a watery grave by going just a bit too far, or let's be honest, a lot too far, but with three or four people, you have a bit more time, maybe even enough for a little strategy. For instance, when you get close to the surface, if you're reasonably sure you're going to get out in time, you can start picking up more treasure. 
The ones close to the top have little value. In fact, some are literally worth zero. But the more you pick up, the faster you use up the oxygen and the fewer turns everyone gets. If you manage to drown everyone else as you escape, well done. This is high risk, though. You could easily end up slowing yourself down so much that you drown, too. But even drowning can be a deliberate strategy. Scores from previous rounds are public knowledge. I've seen a player who was winning going into the last round go really deep, luring everyone else to follow. They kinda had to. If he got another high-value treasure and they didn't, he'd definitely win. Then once we were all too deep, he picked up tons of treasure, burned through the oxygen, and drowned us all. No one got any points in the last round, so he won from the previous scores. That may sound a bit aggressive, and it was. But a game of deep-sea adventure only lasts about 15 minutes, which is not nearly enough time to develop hard feelings. Even a gambling-averse player like me can get into the spirit of pushing my luck and have a fabulous time. And that's Deep Sea Adventure, a quick fun game in a tiny box that will have you diving for sunken treasure farther, always farther. You know it's too far, but you just can't help going farther. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not drowning because I picked up too much treasure, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, this is Rugal Gaviola. Today I'm looking at Obongo, designed by Gregors Rechtman, with art by Nicholas Neubauer and published by Cosmos in 2003. Ubongo was covered by Mason Weaver in Episode 9 of The 5 By. Ubongo is a real-time puzzle game for 1-4 to four players, in which your goal is to solve puzzles as fast as you can, thus earning gems of various point values. A round consists of one puzzle, and the game is 9 rounds long. Each player receives a set of 12 polyominoes, think Tetris-shaped pieces, and draws one random puzzle board. On the standard puzzle board side, the puzzle is solved by placing three of the Tetris-shaped pieces, while on the reverse advanced side, the puzzle is solved by placing four pieces. A player turns over the one-minute sand timer and rolls a six-sided die. On the die are symbols that correspond to a row of Tetris shapes on your board that are used to solve your puzzle. Your puzzle consists of an empty shape that you're trying to fill in completely with your allotted pieces. Once you do, you shout Ubongo and wait until others finish theirs or time runs out. The player who shouted Ubongo first receives a three-point blue gem. Second place receives a one-point brown gem. All players who solve their puzzles in the allotted time get to draw one random gem from the bag, including the first and second place finishers. Red gems are worth four points, blue are three, green are two, and brown gems are one point each. If you didn't solve your puzzle in time, then no gems for you. Players discard their puzzle boards, draw new ones, then start a new round. After 9 rounds, players add up the point values of their collected gems, and the most points wins. Ubongo combines two of my favorite game mechanisms, puzzle solving and real-time action. My love of puzzles comes from my mom, who's always loved to do jigsaw puzzles. It's a hobby that the rest of my family enjoys too, both as a group and by ourselves. I'm a big fan of real-time games, since they usually mean I'm always involved in the action. While I like brain-burning games where you analyze and plan your current and future turns, I love the fast-paced play and immediate gratification of real-time games. Since everybody has their own unique puzzle board, it does you no good to watch what your opponents are doing. Some may see this as multiplayer solitaire, but I like having my own puzzle to work on. The game's interaction comes through the race against your opponents, since first and second place get extra gems, which means extra points. I like that as long as you complete your puzzle within the time limit, you get something. Even if you're last to solve a puzzle, it's a nice consolation drawing a 4-point red gem that'll keep you close to the leaders. Yes, this adds a bit of randomness, but it's an effective catch-up mechanism. Theme-wise, Ubongo means brain in Swahili, and the graphics are meant to evoke Africa. 
kudos to the designers for choosing a non-Eurocentric theme, when they could have gone with nearly any theme for their game. I also appreciate how easy it is to include players of all skill levels. Children can easily compete with adults by having them use the standard three-piece puzzles, while the adults use the advanced four-piece puzzles. You can also have the children pick out their pieces before the timer starts. Or you can require expert players to only use their non-dominant hand. Officially, Ubongo is supposed to take 25 minutes, but depending on the number of players, you can easily play a game in much less time. I've played two and three player games in 15 minutes, which seems like the right amount of time. There are several expansions and re-implementations that build on the basic gameplay. Ubongo Extreme, which uses hexagonal shapes and puzzles. Ubongo 3D, which uses 3D pieces. And Ubongo Duel, which tweaks the basic rules for a two-player game. I haven't played any of these, but based on the original game, I'd try any of these in a heartbeat. There's also a solo game, which is simply you challenging yourself to do as many puzzles as you can within a predetermined amount of time. One bummer about the game. The gems are not colorblind friendly. Since they're used only for keeping score though, these could be swapped out for different colored gems or replaced with cardboard chits. When I play, I have my opponents tell me how many of each color I have so I can tally my score. It's a shame that Cosmos has been publishing this game for so long and still hasn't addressed this issue. Hopefully they'll choose different gems in future editions. Still, I believe Ubongo will continue to be embraced by future generations. It's great for non-gamers since the rules are easily explained and can be one of several lighter games for a casual game night. Of course, if you're not into puzzles or real-time play, then Ubongo is probably a pass. My groups, though, have enjoyed it as a fast abstract game that'll get your brain working, yet it's not a total brain burner. It should be on any gamer's shelves, if only so you can yell, Ubongo! This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Or visit my website, ruelgaviola.com. Hello, it's Lindsay here. And on this week's episode, I've been inspired to talk about Food Chain Magnate, the 2015 economic strategy card game designed by Joran Duman and Yoris Wasinga, published by Splotter with artwork by Iris Dehanna and Yiz Mott. It's a 2-5 player game with 120 to 240 minute duration. In Food Chain Magnate, you are the owner of a fast food chain in a 50s setting. The game isn't so much about the diner itself, but hiring and managing your employees and making as much money as possible by building, advertising and selling around the neighbourhood. The game recently appeared on one of my time hops. For those that aren't familiar, that's like social media memories. And that inspired some Twitter conversation, and now here I am. I've spoken about this game a lot over the past couple of years. I've blogged about it twice. One was a positively glowing review shortly after playing it. And last year's was more of a reflection on that. So I guess this is my final go around for Food Chain Magnate. It's a high strategy game and an absolute brain burster for me. And I personally need lots of mental energy for it. Splotter, who are known for their small periodic print runs, were publishing it again in 2016 and I really wanted it. I was not put off by hearing how difficult it is. I was definitely up for the challenge. I can honestly say after many games, I've only won it once, maybe twice. And I personally do find it extremely challenging. But echoing what Mason talked about last episode, it can sometimes be playing with the same person time and time again that can kill a game, especially when the other person has a knack for it and you don't. I got super frustrated with losing horrendously and repeatedly to the same person that I would actually like to play with someone equally poor so we can both bad it together. 
In Futan Magnate, you randomly lay tiles of a small town and start with one restaurant each, and you have to really pay attention to where you start because this can severely impede your progress from the get-go. You begin with a CEO and make initial recruits, and then you're away. The employees you recruit allow you to perform various actions. You can place different advertisements, build houses, and open new restaurants. You can produce food, pick up drinks, and train other employees that allow you to do more things. You can make profit at dinner time, and you pay your employees wages thereafter. Where customers choose to eat is based on your product value and distance from each house. The training stages are outlined in the handy player menu. As I mentioned, this is a high strategy game, and if you choose the same path I did a couple of times, which is do whatever and see how it works out, it's not recommended. I then tried many different strategies each time. The problem is, is because it's such a beast to set up and play, you're most likely not going to be playing it week after week, which leaves me in the position of haven't played for so long, I'm almost relearning it. The clever part is that it's not particularly fiddly or overly complex with many stages and phases. It's just what you do in the two main phases that count, and it's so unforgiving. I find that if you make a bad decision early on, then it's really going to be hard to claw it back. Again, this can be frustrating for me because it's at this point I can already see that I've lost which can be disheartening but that's the nature of food chain magnate and I don't think it's for the faint-hearted but it is an absolutely wonderful game in terms of design and I want to like it so much but I did get to the point where I almost dreaded it coming to the table again it's been so long since I did play I kind of want to see if further gaming experience since then has taught me anything but here's some things I did learn so please close your ears now if you don't want to hear any tips from me get the milestones as soon as you can the fridge card for example being able to stockpile food will save you continuously using precious actions to cook is a breath of fresh air the quicker you hire and fire employees is key because it's the employees wages that kill your income if you can get discount managers early on that's also preferable and training up to ceo level as fast as you can is wise the funniest strategy I've heard is just hiring waitresses, which is actually a really smart move because they give you income based on tips every round. But I think for me at least that would be a pretty dull game to play. Giving houses gardens and making sure you can deliver to them is a huge cash cow. These people will pay $40 for a burger. It's insane. Just consider everything so carefully and watch what other players are doing constantly. There will come a time when the food chain magnate gets brutal, like you have to be really mean, especially when it comes to advertising and stealing business from another player by using their advertising against them. What I found is that I can have a brilliant strategy in place, then another player comes along, changes the game up and totally thwarts my plans, meaning that I've made myself the town pizza queen for no actual reason. The cleverness of the game and the challenge lies very much in your network of employees and how to use them to your advantage, and I think this is something that most experienced gamers will be familiar with, if nothing else. I do love the appearance of the game, the box art and the little captions are wonderful, it's so well done and it does have that perfect 50s vibe. I dressed up in pin-up style to take a picture for Instagram and we played a 50s music on and you can really get into the spirit of it. I think it was pretty genius how the cards are, which is so pared down with simple black and white images, just use pretty pastel colours to make it really eye-pleasing. But just remember that beyond all those gleaming 50 smiles and adorable menu play raid and delicious non-edible food tokens, there is a hard-as-nails, tough-as-hell gamer's game underneath. I was reluctant to discuss this game at first because although it's currently still for sale, prices are really high, but I did hear that Splotter are doing another print run, so if you dare, you might want to consider this one in your collection and be prepared to really hate other players for an hour or so. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my YouTube or Instagram where I'm Shiny Happy Meeples, my website shinyhappymeeplesco.com or Twitter where I'm capital S, capital H, Meeples, capital C, Co. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about pyramids. 
Small box card games are near and dear to me, and never more so than when they come from some of my favorite designers. Brad Gilbert and Matt Dunstan have put out some stellar titles in the last five years you may already be familiar with. Elysium, Costa Rica, Professor Evil, and their new game Fairy Tile all fall somewhere in the range of medium light to medium weight. Pyramids, released by Yellow in 2017, is on the lighter end of their output, but has been a highly replayable casual card game for us this year. Pyramids is one of those games with a lot of little things going on in it, none of which are complex, but when rolled together give you a bunch of different choices to make every round, all of which are meaningful. I love games with widely branching decision trees, where none of the individual decisions are particularly complicated, but because you have to make so many simple decisions in a round, you stay actively engaged during the whole game. Pyramids is really just a deck of cards, and each of these cards has three different slabs of stone on it. On your turn, you're going to pick two cards from the sets available on the table in front of you and choose where to place them, either in the pyramid of cards you're building in front of you, or the vertical obelisk off to the side, or in the tomb which is a face-down stack of hidden cards from everyone else. So that alone is a lot of decisions, but before you even get to pick, you're going to choose the order in which you pick. I mostly don't care for games that make you bid for turn order, but instead of bidding with money or resources here, you're bidding with your available actions in the upcoming round. Um, I recognize that that is a slightly opaque way of explaining it, but it's at the heart of what distinguishes pyramids from other set collection and pattern building games. So there are these tiles on the table that have turn order number on them, as well as the actions available if you choose that tile. The more actions you want to take, the farther back you're going to be in the turn order. It's a little bit like that wake-up mechanism in Fresco, but a little more straightforward and I think better done. If you want to get first pick of the cards, you're going to have fewer options of where to place them. I'm going to assume that you grasp the basic idea of building a pyramid out of horizontally oriented playing cards overlapping each other. When building your pyramid, you want to put together the largest contiguous sections of light-colored blocks. That seems like it wouldn't be too hard, but Brett and Matt have been very cruel to you, the player, and have made it very, very difficult to do so without sacrificing a lot, if not all, of your other in-game goals. Because while of course you do want large blocks of color in your beautiful pyramid, you also need those colors filling up the tomb where you score color majorities. But you also need that color in your obelisk because you want one color of block in as many levels of your obelisk as possible. Quite a few of the cards in the deck also have single corresponding symbols to either the pyramid, the obelisk, or the tomb. You get bonus points for every one of these symbols in its correct location at the end of the game, which is another decision that you have to make. I've gotten into more detail here about gameplay and rules than I typically do, partially because there's a lot going on in pyramids. No individual aspect of it is complicated, so it's a relatively low cognitive load game that still provides me the satisfying and meaningful choices to make throughout the play. We've mostly played this at two-player, of course, and because we're very familiar with the game, it's easy to chat or listen to music while we play. There's some interaction, but you can't take things away from other people, and there's no text to read or complex symbology to decipher. Even in a dark bar or restaurant, you could absolutely play casually without even really being able to see what your opponents were doing. Pyramids could easily become a regular inhabitant of your quiver or backpack. I love these kinds of games because they offer enjoyable experiences at different skill levels and across a broad band of emotional engagement. Pyramids works beautifully as the kind of tight, tactical decision-making tableau builder where you're constantly watching the other players to see what they take and where they're putting it. But we also regularly play it on a weeknight after working all day just as a casual and fun way to unwind. Even in mixed groups of cutthroat and distracted players, everyone ends up with something to show for their efforts even if they don't win. Some of my favorite hobby games sit comfortably in that space of I can play this with the kids, but I can also take it to game night. Everyone can enjoy it in different ways for different reasons. Brett and Matt are in that same design space as some other 5 by favorites like Phil Walker-Harding or J. Alex Kevron for exactly this reason. Our shelf space is best occupied by games that do more than just one thing. Maximizing versatility and replayability in our library helps us get the most out of our money and our time and our storage space. 
The box for pyramids is a pleasant little magnetic closed book style affair, similar to what Yellow used for Biblios. Insert is fine and the cardboard tiles are nice, but the card quality is mediocre at best. There's a large stack of cards and pyramids that you absolutely must shuffle at the beginning of the game, and shuffle very thoroughly. These cards are almost impossible to bridge shuffle, and the edges started chipping almost immediately, much to my intense displeasure. My solution to this was of course to sleeve them, which makes side shuffling them quick and convenient, but also made it a little harder to fit back into the insert. It fit, but not exactly in a way that I like. One of the highlights of the production in Pyramids are the excellent and very well designed score sheets, which are absolutely essential to play this game. I play small card games all the time that are in desperate need of good score sheets, so I really appreciate when a game comes with them already. So, who should buy Pyramids? People who like casual card games. People who like low interaction set collection. People who like hidden but trackable information and people who like low rules overhead with massively branching decision trees. I give pyramids 6 out of 6 limestone monuments in the western desert south of Cairo. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, talking about a game I've been enjoying for six years. Alhambra was the result of Dirk Henn reworking and expanding an earlier card game he first self-published in 1993 under the name Al Capone. After being published in 2003, the Alhambra board game won this Spiel de Jar, and it's remained in print pretty much continuously. In fact, it's become such an established name in gaming that the original card game is now rethemed and published as Alhambra the Card Game. The game is at its heart a set collection game. Players earn points in three scoring rounds based on having majorities in each of the six types of building tiles. But they also have to be able to place the tiles they buy in a way that forms a cohesive palace complex. If they can build a long, unbroken exterior wall around their palace, they'll also earn points for that. Players are going to spend turns either taking currency, buying tiles, or redesigning their palace. The game actually has four types of currency represented by cards, and when tiles are added to the market, they'll be randomly assigned to a space depicting a particular currency. This means that players have four tiles available for purchase, each requiring a different type of card. If they manage to pay exactly, they'll get to take another bonus turn, which can be pretty powerful. Purchased tiles are added to the player's palace, or can be put in a reserve for placement later, but players have to be very careful about the timing of that, as when scoring round cards come out, any tiles in the reserve are aren't going to count. There are a number of restrictions in Alhambra that lead to tricky decisions. If you choose to take currency from the display, you can take one card of any value, or multiple cards if they total five or less. Scoring rounds, however, are going to be prompted by cards hidden in the deck, so if you take a lot of cash, you might risk prompting a scoring before you've actually been able to buy tiles. But if you forgo grabbing the perfect card, you might end up having to overpay for a building tile, and then you don't get that bonus turn. If you build a really nice long wall, then that's guaranteed points unaffected by your opponents. But you've just restricted all of your placement options. You see, tiles can't be rotated and have to connect to your starting tile with a path uninterrupted by those very walls that can earn you points. It all makes Alhambra a game with very simple, easy-to-teach roles, but that has a lot of depth coming out during play. It can be a pleasant, chill experience building pretty palaces if that's what you're looking for. But when we play, it tends to be a rather cutthroat game of denying your opponent precious points while building a palace that, while still pretty, is basically an imposing fortress. Let me make one thing clear though at this point. I've only ever played Alhambra as a two-player game, despite the fact that it can take up to six players. The two-player variant uses a dummy player named Dirk, but you're not having to make moves for a robot. At the start of the game, and after the first two scoring rounds, you'll simply randomly deal Dirk some tiles. 
He doesn't get wall points, so instead of arranging them in a palace, you simply lay them out by type to show what majorities he's competing for. Players can look at where they stand in comparison and make decisions accordingly. The one twist is that players can buy a tile and then give it to Dirk instead of putting it in their own palace, ensuring he beats or ties their opponent on a majority, taking points from them. The variant plays super smoothly and it really doesn't feel like you're adding fiddliness, which is probably why we enjoy the two-player experience so much. Would I like to play with more people? Well, of course I would, but it's not the end of the world if that doesn't happen. There are a ton of expansions available for Alhambra, many of which have been packaged together in modular collections. I actually own the big box version of the game, which has 20 modules in it, but I can tell you I only regularly play with just one of them. The change module found in the Thieves' Turn expansion adds a bag of coins to the game, from which players actually get change when they overpay for buildings, pulling random coins. The one-value coins make it much more likely that you can pay exact price on a later transaction, pulling off a nice combo term. It's not a dramatic change to the game, but at this point we rarely play without it. In terms of production, my copy's lovely. I like the classic feeling art, and the cards are charmingly retro at this point. The tiles themselves are nice and thick, letting them stand up to being shuffled in a bag, and the bags have a nice mix of printed fabrics. I will admit that the big box takes up a lot of space. It has a really nice handy image that shows where everything goes in the insert, but it's an insert designed to only be stored horizontally, or everything just moves around. There's a lot of extra space in there, and I'm very glad that I actually have a bookcase built specifically for oversized game boxes. Alhambra is a game that I partially keep around for sentiment. Not only do I have fond memories of visiting the actual Alhambra, but Kit gave me my copy of the game as part of his proposal, and we played it more than once while we were honeymooning. That only explains why I still have it in my possession, not why I still play the game after six years. It's a game about managing your hand, timing your purchases right, and keeping a very close eye on your competition. The game flows smoothly and continues to hold up without needing too much fuss. But if I want fuss, I can add a ton of content, everything from wild current to special characters, or even invading armies. I still adore the game, and I'd love to see people still playing it, so let me know how it goes. And if you want to know about any of the expansion modules, feel free to suggest one, as I'm looking to work my way through them soon. Until next time, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com, or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to The Five by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to the 5 by on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your 5-star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at 5 bygamescom the Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.